0: Today I talk to Leah Winkley, Headmaster at Shrewsbury School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the impact of having a parent as a headteacher on your own leadership style, the future of boarding, careers of the future, as well as partnerships with the community. You grew up around schools as your late father was also a headmaster. How did being immersed in the sector from a young age shape your ideas on education? I guess
1: in some respects, I'm sort of institutionalized having grown up at Cranley school from sort of noughts to 18, both as a staff child. And then when my dad went off to Winchester, he gave my brother and me the choice of following in his wake or staying put as boarders at Cranley. And we all agreed that it would be better for us to sort of be separate and we could embarrass him from a distance. And schools, I think growing up in them, you register the fact that they are very special places with very particular atmospheres. Of course, you're conscious as a staff child of the huge difference between a school in term time and then the kind of shell of a school in holidays. And I guess that's one of the things I remember growing up as a child is just seeing older children around, looking up to them and kind of admiring them as, as kind of role models and thinking, gosh, they're impressive aren't they together and organized? And getting a sense of adults and the way they form communities around these children, obviously, particularly so in a, in a boarding school setting where you get a really strong sense that it's about people. I suppose that's the, the single biggest obvious thing really about my own learnings growing up in these environments is just how community-based learning and education is the essence of a boarding school life. And knowing people as people is the core part of uh, what makes these things work, not systems. It's about people loving working together and just that sort of combination of really interesting people living and working together. That's really fueled me, I think.
0: And did you always have ambitions to be a ahead yourself, having, you say, about being institutionalized? Was that, did you have no choice but to go into education or was it just ambition because you enjoyed the environment, you knew it inside out, it just became a love that you could go off and do as a vocation too?
1: Probably a bit of a magnetic pull. I mean, I did try quite hard to um, look at other things. So after university, I, I lived in uh, in France for a couple of years and did various jobs, worked on a reconstruction of a chateau in the Loire Valley. And I taught English and did various other sort of bits and bobs. But I did sort of get sort of magnetically pulled into the education sector and and started working at Ardingly on a short term thing that turned into five years. And and, uh, the rest, as it were, is is sort of personal history. I think I was mindful that these places make sense to me on quite a deep level. And having grown up in an environment where there were young people around and teachers and all of the wonderful folk who work in schools, it just sort of makes pure sense to me, I suppose.
0: And obviously with your father's time a ahead and you growing up and seeing schools the way they were. Do you think they fundamentally changed since the days that your father was ahead and you leading a school now? My father
1: and I had two really exciting years where we actually overlapped as HMC heads, which I think is a unique thing when he was towards the end of his sort of second phase of headship when he was running Russell and and I was at St. Peter's in York. And it's fair to say, I, I, and they probably threw away the mold when they made him anyway. He was a fairly distinctive character and a bit of a an antinomian, very much a sort of charismatic individualist kind of leader and somebody who used to bemoan the increasing sort of creeping systematization, if you like, of, of, of education, of sort of focus on policies and systems. He famously snuck when his school was going through an inspection, a bogus policy in on Alligators and how to deal with an escaped alligator from a local zoo, just to see if the inspectors noticed, which they did. But I think there was a little bit of a protest comment there about just how many policies and regulations schools have to follow. I think those are all necessary, probably. And I would say, you know, the world that we operate in now is, you know, that sense of accountability has been taken on board rightly in a way that maybe, you know, him and his generation would have struggled with more. But hopefully it hasn't taken the heart and soul out of education. And that, I think, is one of the things we as school leaders need to really, really preserve is the focus on the pupils, the focus on the love in schools and the joy and not to be deadened by systems and regulations that are necessary and good and really important. But they are not the point. They are the facilitators of the love of learning and working with children.
0: Yeah. I love the crocodile. I'm going to call it the crocodile clause. That is your next blog title. I think every school should have a crocodile clause because we do have to test the way that systems are already set up and you know the way that education has been formed and the rules and the policies in which schools like you and state sectors have to adhere to these. So the crocodile clause, I think is brilliant. A man off my own heart, a bit of a maverick. Were there any tips on leadership? that you really took to heart from your father, that you've now embedded in the way that you lead?
1: First thing about him was that he was very good at not giving advice, which I think is a really good skill, both as a parent and as a teacher. That might sound counterintuitive, but that sense of sort of giving a set of values or a context or an atmosphere, but letting people discover their own way of being is really important. And I suppose the thing that I would emphasise Is that sense of leading out of who you are, of authenticity? It's sort of become almost platitudinous to talk about authentic leadership, but that's because it's really true. And particularly working with children, but with clever grown ups as well as we all do work within schools, you know, people spot fakes, they spot people who aren't being themselves. The only way to be consistent is to operate out of genuinely held values. And one of the best bits of advice that I was given, actually, not by my dad, but, you know, get yourself a little journal, write down the things that you, Stand for as an educationalist. It just gives you a little bit of a personal manual, if you like, a sort of creed that you follow. And that I have. But ultimately, you know, we've got to lead by learning and looking at others, but also fundamentally out of who we are, particularly, I think, when you live and work in the same place as you do in a boarding school environment.
0: Yeah. Shrewsbury is a boarding school which aims to empower pupils to flourish in life. Charles Darwin is one of your most famous alumni and naturalists. Geologist, biologist, the godfather of life itself, it seems. Do you think that he still embodies what Shrewsbury School is about?
1: Yeah, I think he's an icon, globally recognized, emblematic of intellectual curiosity and the willingness to question and explore and discover. And there's still plenty more of that to do in the world. So, yeah, I think he's emblematic of that spirit of inquiry and sort of willing to make intellectual journeys, also somebody who was keen on expanding out of sort of more formal modes of education and learning outside of the normal classroom, if you like. And we believe very strongly in that nowadays, understand that you know everywhere is a classroom to learn through the co-curricular program and, and enjoy the personal development that happens you know, going out into the world and exploring and contributing is really, really important. So he's a, a good icon for that. He also seems to have led a pretty good life, actually. He had a functional family life, you know, he raised children, and he seems to have been a, a generally decent sort of human being. As we move forward, we'll get increasing, as we hope, of female icons of similar stature. Really important, I think, that co-educational schools celebrate great female role models of education and leadership as well.
0: So we talk about flourishing in life. You know, how does boarding help achieve this in a way that day schools can't? Well, there are some great day schools who do great things. The one thing that distinguishes
1: us particularly from the day environment is the luxury and the gift of time with our pupils in so many different ways over the course of a 7-day week shared together. And I think there are ways in which people learn particularly through social interaction, through activity and life in-house that develop those interpersonal soft skills that are really, really important um, that boarding is particularly good at. And there's a really interesting paradox, I think, between the way in which, for example, I think demonstrably, boarders will tend to be both better at yielding and working around and compromising and understanding others, but also being good at asserting for themselves and being able to persuade and um, make sure that they hold their ground as well, which is, as I say, potentially paradoxical. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that kind of communal living develops those really important skills uh, and the kind of emotional qualities, sense of sort of corporate responsibility and social engagement that you get through being part of a boarding community.
0: And has boarding changed significantly from the days that you were at school? Yeah, absolutely. And for the
1: better. I think pastoral care has moved through huge strides over recent years and decades. The sense of whole person education is much more clearly defined, I think, and that sense of how we're working to develop people with character strengths that are directable with a really good set of values. I think schools are generally much more holistic in how they articulate what they're trying to do. You could talk about the physical nature of boarding schools having improved, but It's much more about the educational ethos, I think, that is much more clearly understood and articulated. I just think we're better at caring for children. And I think older pupils are better at and more empowered to look after and lead younger pupils. Boarding schools have become less hierarchical, flatter structures, and all to the better. Loads of other ways in which boarding schools have developed, just like wider society has become much more mobile, open, tolerant, and all those good things.
0: Boarding has to adapt. It has to become relevant in today's day and age, and it's had to adapt to the changing demands of its market. There's obviously still a lot of negative perceptions around boarding of the past and the stories. What do schools like yours need to be doing just to raise the profile of boarding? The key thing
1: is for people to understand the nature of good modern boarding, that it is... Not a community that sort of seals itself off from the world. It's very permeable. Parents are involved much, much more perhaps than they would have been in previous times. Um, School communities are hugely integrated into their local settings. They're much more permeable in that sense too. I think there is ongoingly a bit of sort of myth busting to be done to get people to understand how boarding works and that sense that boarding school communities are really quite broad, diverse, and open and gentle environments that are allowing pupils of lots of different kinds and personalities to thrive. So the boarding sector certainly, I actually think, will come out of the COVID experience really, really positively because one of the things we have absolutely understood about the fragmentation of being online and being in bubbles is just how important being together is. Boarding is all about the value of being part of something bigger.
0: And I've been thinking about the whole boarding and COVID situation. On one hand, thinking that the increase in online education will impact the amount of families choosing boarding because they're going, well, we can still do it remotely. Why do I need to send my child away? The other side going, well, actually, kids need to be in school. I actually need my time back. And schools are great places. Boarding schools are great places to be able to develop that whole child, both pastorally, emotionally, academically spiritually, all of those things. So I'm kind of stuck in the middle going, you know, how much will the changing landscape of maybe a hybrid education impact boarding, or do you not see that impacting it at all?
1: I think it's just great news for boarding schools in terms of the underlining of just the pure value of being in community, as mentioned I think there are some real gains that we've had through the use of technology and delivering content, how we give feedback in terms of our teaching and learning through online means, the way in which we've had to flip learning, all of that is really, really good. And some good nuggety things like parent consultation sessions being done online. Actually, that's landed brilliantly. And it means that when we do get parents here in person, we can focus on more expansive work on, you know, pastoral partnership with parents and, you know, social enjoyment of their children's journey at the school and sort of hive off a little bit the academic and pastoral feedback if you like on individual progress technology great lots of um, forward strides taken there as i say i think it's a huge reminder for us all how much value you get from in-person living and learning so it's good news for the boarding sector
0: i hope you're enjoying the inspiring schools podcast We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. The Futures Department, I love it. I'm assuming the Futures Department is the careers service and it supports all the pupils at Shrewsbury in planning and preparing future careers. How is the world of work that we're preparing pupils for changing? It's certainly dynamic, isn't it? And changing is a
1: key word. Uh, the reason for us rebadging it, the futures department, is absolutely that sense that actually careers has a little bit of a sort of narrow sense to it. and We wanted to be thinking about a diversity of destinations, Likelihoods that children leaving schools are going to go in lots of different directions and some will go to universities in the UK or across the world pushing that sort of sense of diversity of destinations and the excellence comes in many forms and I think we have a much more refined sense of the best fit destinations for individual courses and subject areas and that sort of thing so you know being able to direct them in that way but actually lots of people with a clear eye to going straight into the world of work or eyeing different sort of portfolio careers where they're going to be reinventing themselves and the focus then is on how you build a set of skills that are transferable, and the use of networks. I think that's a a really important element we've worked to build into our futures faculty because expertise can be found in lots of different places. And it's unlikely that a school will be a one-stop shop for all possible destinations. So drawing on the network of old Salopians, former Shrewsbury pupils, particularly those have recently gone into particular careers because they know what it's like to enter those professions now or recently, and then acting as ambassadors and mentors for people who are potentially going to go into similar destinations. So, I think harnessing the power of networks and connectivity is probably the biggest focus we have in our work on futures.
0: And does the rapidly changing landscape make it difficult for schools to offer this kind of career support? Because we often hear about the jobs that don't exist, what you need to go and be able to work in the modern workplace what skills you need do you think that your staff are equipped to be able to offer that advice beyond what i'm going to call the professions which i remember being the only advice i got in my careers department or library was you could only really go into a profession there was no expansion on excitement and you know you talk about portfolio careers and these different careers so does the rapidly changing landscape make it difficult for schools to offer this kind of career support?
1: No. I think only
0: if it views
1: itself as a sort of library that must have the right book for the right question, if you see what I mean. But if you view the Futures faculty as a sort of nexus, a point that seeks to connect, you can connect in any direction that you choose. And that's the way we would view our Futures faculty. It's about connecting and joining people to the potential pathways and to experts who understand those pathways. And I think the focus is less on content in terms of the preparation for the next step and more on the sort of aptitudes and that sense of working with children actually really from the moment they enter senior school to think about how they are building that kind of campaign towards life after school. That's not to say we want them to be constantly sort of earnestly serious about everything because actually they're supposed to enjoy the journey through school, but they do need to be increasingly savvy. And that's where advice and guidance is is about drawing in the expertise, listening, really good listening skills. That's what uh, futures experts should have. Be able to hear and understand the strengths of individual children and be able to connect them with potential directions that they can then pursue.
0: You talked about aptitude tests. My daughter, she just finished her A-levels and we actually signed up to, I think it's called Future Careers. And it is an online, and it's, I think it's in a lot of the independent schools. And it is an aptitude test with what they like, what their skills are, their interests are like. And it just mines a, a wealth of data to be able to come back and go, you would probably be suited to these. Have a look at these diverse range of opportunities, careers, jobs, as well as what universities they may want to go off and do, what courses and where. Have you come across anything like that, or do you use anything similar? There's lots of tools out there, aren't there? Which
1: is fantastic. And and schools will be doing different tools to help children to identify their strengths and and think about careers. I think it's one amongst many other methods that should be used. But the key thing is to get conversations happening, both formally through the structured curriculum and through having centrally placed advice and guidance team that the children feel is available to them, and to have a sort of open-minded culture that says, go out and explore.
0: What skills would be necessary for them to have, regardless of the developments and careers that occur? One of the words that springs to my mind often is the
1: art of persuasion. I think it's a really important skill in almost any walk of life to be able to convey why something matters. So the ability to communicate or see all of those sort of skills of interrelating with others, those are massively important. The ability to lead, creativity, creativity. I think all of these aptitudes, and you could run a whole great long list, I mean, the World Economic Forum's list of potential qualities that individuals need to have, lots of worthy good lists. They also need to be founded on a sense of kind of values, a system by which people will choose and make good decisions in life, and I think deeper sense of a personal moral compass without sounding overly sort of worthy, is really important as well. It's not just about skills. You have to have a sense of how you're going to use those skills. Skills need to be situated on a really firm base of good values.
0: If we are preparing our children for jobs that don't exist, doesn't education itself need to change too? What are the biggest barriers to this change, do you think? Is it policy or appetite or skills or something else or a mixture? I think a lot of it
1: comes down to the notion of qualifications. And how you accredit and recognize whatever a finished article looks like. And we all know, and it's a tired but correct observation that you know, examination certificates are only part of the picture. So recognizing that employers and university courses and indeed human beings generally will make judgments on a whole set of observations about individual people's competencies. They're not simply asking you to present your level two award for this or your you know, certificate for that. So I think recognizing the less visible qualities of individual human beings for a system that inevitably has to sort of grade people in some kind of way and we just have to make sure that we we don't lose sight of the fact that some of the most successful people in life have charted courses because of things that didn't necessarily ping on a certificate.
0: I completely share that. It's an old fashioned view and I think certainly employers nowadays aren't looking for that. I think it can be a filter for certain professions, but I do know that employers are looking at the individual, you know what skills do you bring, what talent do you bring. What personality do you bring? Because that's the cultural dynamic you have within an organization that you want to build a great team and get someone with curiosity and their own passion to be able to drive that. So we've got a long way to go, but you know, by having a futures department, looking at the way in which you support all your children through skill-based support as well is brilliant. I want to talk about your partnerships because Shrosby has a number of partnerships and has been working with the shoesy. It's a youth club in Everton for almost 120 years. What tangible benefits has this partnership had on the school and the wider community?
1: It's massive for us in lots of different ways. And it's one of the range of different partnership relationships we have with local primary and secondary schools and food banks and care homes and and a whole range of different relationships. But the Shoesie is very much at the heart of our partnership work. It was founded by Shrewsbury Teachers back in 1903. is essentially a youth and community club, completely open to anybody who wants to come. There's no charge. They come after school and there's essentially a youth club activities program there and volunteer mentors who work with the kids there. And it does lots of other things in the local community as well. We have lots of exchange programs. Which get our pupils up to spend a couple of days in the shoesy in a pretty deprived and disadvantaged area of Liverpool, which is eye opening and beneficial obviously to our pupils. And we get kids from Liverpool down here to Shrewsbury and we do lots of work with them just to give them experiences and open the eyes again to the things that are possible. It's a really, really important relationship for us. And we're looking to develop that even further over coming years, working to uh, enhance the education programs that we run with the Shoesies. So it's mutually beneficial and partnership that works the best actually there's benefit in all directions it benefits our kids here and the staff and it benefits the community up in West Everton
0: yeah and i think partnerships have to be that i know there's a lot of support that independent schools do for the local communities and you know it seems to be a lot of one way and i think partnerships have to they absolutely have to be benefiting both parties so it's great to hear the success of the shoesy that you're doing amongst a lot of other initiatives and partnerships that you have in place at Shrewsbury Your father looking down at you now, what would he think of the way that you're leading the school?
1: Yeah, he'd be like most people who are sort of no longer running schools, probably looking at kind of COVID times and thinking, well, I'm quite glad I'm not doing that right now because it's been pretty uh complicated and i mean enlivening in many respects there's been a a lot of mobility and adaptability required but it's been pretty sapping if i'm honest and i I think any leader of any organization would would probably reflect that at these times he'd sort of look down and and sort of give me a little wink and sort of raised eyebrow and and encouraging some grin and, and say carry on
0: leo as ever thanks ever so much for your time I hope every school is going to go and put Crocodile Claws policy (laughs) into their files. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.